Living Time and the Integration of the Life by Dr. Morris Nickel. We left off in the middle of something really tough, as I recall, and I'll read the last sentence before we left off so that people can connect it up together. Thus, four-dimensional organism is not the perceptible body, but the invisible body containing the visible body. See, we're stuck with the visible body. This thing that you're sitting in now, whether you have sitting there, that thing limits you to the time that you're in now, the now moment, so that the past and the future are non-existent for you. The only thing there is for you because of this body and the limitations of this body is now. So by sense, we are only related to the visible body itself. Because of the five senses, this is the only thing we're related to, is this body. So we don't know about any other bodies that we may have. And we'll have to say may have, because if you say have, then people go, they go crazy, because they don't understand. And when we don't understand, we go crazy. In fact, we can't get there from here, can we? We're already crazy. (laughs) By sense, we're only related to the visible body itself, that is, as given perceptually through sight and touch and hearing. Okay, so we're clear on that. Now we will pick up where we left off. Viewed thus, the life, rightly conceived, is not merely a local phenomenon in passing time, confined to the point we call the present and isolated in the visible three-dimensional world. As direct experience, it is so. So as direct experience, this is it. What we have here right now, this present moment, is all there is from direct experience. But it is more. This is where the introduction of ideas that come from a higher place can help us if we're willing to be helped. Most people are not willing to be helped because they would have to give something up. And most people are not willing to give anything up. They want to keep everything and add to it. They don't want to get rid of anything. We have to be willing to get rid of something. It's more because we're not regarding three-dimensional space as the sole container of things. It is the sole container so far as empirical experience. That is, the experience of our senses reveals the world to us. This is it. What our senses tell us is this is it. There is nothing else. But we're trying to force our thoughts beyond the limits of sense, beyond that aspect of the total world rendered by sense towards the realm of ideas. So we're trying to get from this prison of the only thing we know to be true is what the senses tell us to another higher world, to another expanded state of consciousness. And the vehicle, the conduit, is ideas. Ideas that don't come from the sense-based mind and the sense world. We actually find such an exercise recommended in a passage from the ancient Hermetic literature, which belongs to the earliest centuries of our era. To reach another state, another level of understanding, we're told, to expand ourselves to the magnitude of all existence. Okay. That means almost nothing to us. Go ahead. I'd like to see you expand yourself to the magnitude of all existence. We're like brainless. What? How do you do that? Well, hang with me, and I'll explain it to you. Only in this way, the writer says, can the life become permanently unified, changed into eternal substance. What is the magnitude of all existence? See, that's where we go. I don't know. The sense of existence throughout all one's time is meant. So what does that mean? It means that the sense of this living organism, this thing that we're living in, in higher space, which contains the little living organism of the temporal body, actually, the sense of this living organism in higher space. So there is something in higher space that precipitates this physical body that you're now sitting in, that you're chained to, that you're imprisoned in. You do realize you are absolutely imprisoned in this thing. And when I say this thing, I really mean this thing, because it is a burden. We don't see it as a burden because we don't know of anything else. 
But when you do know of something else, you see, it's like people don't understand what a burden standing up is and running and walking until they can find something to sit on. Then they go, wow, that's a lot better. People don't understand how difficult it is to walk everywhere until there's a different means of conveyance, like a horse or a carriage or a car or a bus or a train or an airplane. Then it's suddenly like, wow, this is really, then the walking thing is really slow and it, the world is just this huge place. But it shrinks as you have a quicker means of conveyance. Try and look at it that way, that where we are right now is in this, we're in overwhelm because we're stuck in this body, stuck in the sense perception. But there is a different conveyance, a different state of awareness, a different consciousness that can take you places that you can never go in this state of mind, in your ordinary consciousness. Now he says, and this is good, think that you are not yet begotten. Think that you are in the womb, that you are young, that you are old, that you are dead, that you are in the world beyond the grave. Grasp all that in your thought at once, all times and places. So you can see that this is a problem for our minds because we have to do something besides run around in circles with our thoughts because that's what our thoughts are. Our thinking is really, it's like a train that's on a circular track and we just think in circles. We don't really ever get very far off track. If we do, it's because something knocked us off track. But what we're trying to do now is we're trying to get off track or bend the track up so that we can spiral higher instead of constantly staying where we are and repeating the things over and over again. The perception of this idea that the life is extended in time is a step towards the unification of life because all the life, strange and incredible, appears. What that means is, as we are now, the only past you have is in memory. The only future you have is in imagination. But as you begin to think that you are not yet begotten, think that you are in the womb, that you're young, that you're old, that you are dead, that you are in the world beyond the grave, as soon as you can begin to grasp all that in your thought at once, all times and places. So as soon as that happens, you take a step towards the unification of life because all the life, strange and incredible, appears. All the life, meaning your whole past life and your whole future life, as it exists, as it actually exists, but we can't see it because we're stuck in the third dimension. And all the rest of it, the past and the future, are in the fourth dimension. But we're stuck here in the third dimension. And the only thing we know about the fourth dimension is where it touches us now, like the paper people and the pencil going through. So we're seeing a cross-section of our life. And that cross-section is this very moment. And on either side of it, we see nothing. We say, well, that's gone, and we say the other doesn't exist. But it does in the fourth dimension, the same way the pencil exists in the third dimension, but the two-dimensional people can't see it. We're all on the same page? Good. The writer adds that only in this way can we begin to apprehend God, whereas if we shut the soul up in the bodily senses, that is, we think sensually, we can have no conception of God. This is why sense-minded people are so violent. Their conception of God is bizarre. He's always angry. He wants you to kill anybody who doesn't agree with you or him. Slaughter everything. Burn everything down. Destroy the earth. Punish everybody. Just in case you hadn't noticed, we have a whole, there's a whole Islamic state in the process of doing just that. Trying to do exactly that. Trying to destroy everything except what they think is right. There is nothing more violent than thinking that you're right. Having to be right is the most violent, it's the breeding ground for violence. Being right is the breeding ground for violence. Is not the idea of God here definitely connected with dimensions beyond those perceptible to sense, and so with higher reality in ourselves? Yes. 
The idea here to apprehend God definitely connects it with a higher dimension beyond those perceptible to our senses. So what do we do if it's not perceptible to our senses? We're kind of in a pickle then. Like we're stuck. Okay, so it's not perceptible to your senses. Now what? How do you get out of this? Now, if we're going to grasp that we live at all points of our life, past, present, and future, no longer can the distinction between yesterday, today, and tomorrow be made. We have to stop doing that. But something must yield in us before we cease to make this distinction. Something in us has to give up. Something in us has to surrender. We've got to give something up before we can make this distinction. We come here against some very strong point of denial. And the very strong point of denial is because you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it, you can't touch it, you can't hear it. It doesn't exist. And so therefore, that's your point of denial. It can't exist. From one side, this denial originates from our belief in the evidence of things seen. Obviously, we only believe in what we can see. From our materialism, because we are materialists. And we're materialists because we're stuck in a material world. Even though we're spiritual beings living in a spiritual world governed by spiritual laws, we don't know that. We know it as an idea, as a concept, but it's just a theory for us. It's rarely ever real for us. And if it is, we forget it quickly. To perceive inwardly that the life lies in higher space, in the fourth dimension, in the fifth dimension, in the sixth dimension, in the seventh dimension, as a living process veiled from sense. So our senses are blind to it. It's there, but we can't see it. It's veiled. means that we must be prepared to seize hold upon an idea. This is our salvation. This is the lifeboat. This is the life raft. This is the life preserver. That's the thing that can help get us up there, an idea. And this idea opens the life out. It admits the life, draws the life together, causes the entire sense of the life to change. The illusion of passing time begins to be broken through. The relative nothingness that we give to yesterday and tomorrow begins to disappear. Now, this should already be happening to you. It should be crumbling a little. If you've been doing the exercises that I recommended that you do, and I can tell by the look on your face, you can't even remember what they are. So, I can see you haven't been doing them, because you can't even remember what they are. Speaking from another angle, Eckhart says that if we hold fast to the distinction between today and tomorrow and yesterday, we hold fast to nothingness. Nothing of our past, present, or future. Nothing of our yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If we hang on to just this that we have now, if we're not willing to give up this present moment and start to see that yesterday exists and tomorrow exists right now, that they all exist. In fact, millions of yesterdays exist and millions of tomorrows exist. Yes, for you. With the sense of time itself, with the sense of the magnitude of all existence, would we not cease counting time as we do? Cease making the particular distinction that we make between yesterday, today, and tomorrow? Well, yes. Yes, we would. It's like going out at night and looking up into the heavens, into the looking out from the earth at the stars and the galaxies and the, everything that we can see. Those stars are suns or galaxies. Sometimes we see a galaxy and we think it's this or that. But when you start to do that, it makes you feel very small and it has a way of changing your perspective of things, doesn't it? Not all the time, because sometimes you look up there and go, well, the stars are pretty, and you're back to being a moron, back to the planet of the apes. But sometimes, every once in a while, you go, wow, that's all. You just say, wow, and you start to get it. And that is an idea that expands us. Now, it expands us into stupid. What we get is stupid. We just go, huh? We don't understand, but we know that there's something higher. We know that there's something infinite and magnificent but we don't understand what it is. But that's okay, because we're not ashamed of being in awe. 
We're not ashamed of being awestruck or wonderstruck by it. You know, it's interesting when you look at a star, you're looking at the path. Yes, absolutely. You're looking at something that is, the light coming from that is light years away. That star may have been turned off a thousand years ago, and nobody on this planet knows it. But here it exists. Yeah, but here it exists, because the light is still traveling to us. Okay. In higher space, there is no time as we understand it. Nothing of our past, present, or future. Nothing of our yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In higher space, the way we see things doesn't even exist. Just like in the third dimension, the way the two-dimensional people, paper people, see things doesn't exist to us. It's like we can't see the pencil like they see the pencil. We can only see the pencil the way we see the pencil. And if we were to explain to them about the pencil, they would think we were crazy. Just like if somebody explains to you about the fourth dimension, you have a tendency to think they're a little crazy. You don't think I'm crazy, though, do you? Just a little? No, not even a little? Okay, that's good. So he says, for we make barriers between them, past, present, and future, and think of escaping into tomorrow. Tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow will be a better day. But it is really all the same. One today. The life itself. Your life is bigger than this moment. But we cut the life down to a little point, which determines our weal and woe. Tomorrow is still one's life. All the life makes a today. All of the life, all of your life, past, present, and future, makes a today. And we cannot escape from our life. All my life is. Of all my life, I must say is. Let the reader note the feelings that begin to arise with this summoning up of the life apart from this present moment of existence and the distinction between yesterday and tomorrow. So if you say yesterday is and tomorrow is, yes, that's the exercise that I gave you that you forgot. If you say yesterday is, you stop saying was. You get rid of will be and was and only have one tense, is. That's your exercise. That's what you're supposed to be doing as often as you can think about it, as often as you can remember to do that. Do that. In contrast to these feelings is our present momented psychology. Our present momented psychology is the psychology that comes from only believing that all we have is this moment. All you have is this moment. How many times do you hear that? All you have is now. Yes, all you have is now. That is true. But what we don't understand is that now includes all of our past and all of our future. And it is. It's not was and will be. It is. And that's the exercise. That's what we need to be clinging to, exercising our minds with. So, he says, in contrast to these feelings, is our present momented psychology, which is governed by self-love and the belief in passing time. Self-love is a monster. It is an absolute monster. And we have no clue how evil it is. I'm relating these two factors from the standpoint that the structure of our natural psychology is interlocked, one factor depending upon another factor. You can see that self-love and this present moment, that if you could have more than this present moment, you could get rid of self-love. If you could have the past and the future as now, as is, self-love would start to weaken. Maybe you don't see that, but hold that thought. Just keep it on the back burner. Put it in your lap. Don't do anything with it right now. But just wait with it. Just sit with it, and it will become clear. Any alteration in this structure, any change in the quality of consciousness, depends partly upon a change in the time factor. You know that when time changes for you, your consciousness expands. A change in the time factor will mean change in other directions as well. The hermetic exercise is obviously designed to change the present momented psychology. That is, this psychological prison that we're in now, the psychological prison of past, future, and all we have is this sliver of time called the present moment. Through a change in the time factor and a consequent expansion of consciousness, 
throughout all the life. So as we begin to see all the life, past, present, and future, all as today, all as right now, all as is, something begins to happen. Our consciousness begins to expand. Now, you're not going to find that happening right away, but that's okay. That's okay. It doesn't happen like that. You don't just turn the page and there it is. It's a process, and you're involved in the process now. It hints that self-development is partly development into time. So we can understand that our apparent relationship to time gives us a wrong feeling of self. If you cannot feel your past as alive right now and your future as alive and happening right now, if you can't feel that, you can see that your sense of yourself, how you hold yourself, is severely limited. So you can see that self-love goes crazy with this. The past is gone. The future doesn't exist. Therefore, all you've got is me right now. It's every man for himself. You see how self-love enters in? And it's vicious. It's really vicious and selfish because it's limited to just this moment. And you've got to get everything you can get in just this moment. And you've got to screw the other guy and take this and grab that and have ambition. And all of this stuff drives us. And it's all locked up with this present moment psychology that we're stuck in. But the self-love requires a sharper environment and a more constant pressure for its transformation than our own thoughts. Your thoughts alone are not going to shake the self-love loose. It's not going to happen. It takes a constant pressure and it takes a sharper environment. It particularly concentrates itself in the sense of present momented existence and the visible life of appearances and in the related feelings of I. When you're stuck in this physical moment right here, when you're stuck in that, you can't feel your past or feel your future. If you can't feel them as real, as alive, as happening right now, as living things, as all part of your life, then you are stuck in a momentary psychology. And a momentary psychology is a psychology that can only exist from moment to moment, in slivers of time. We see merely bodies existing in the present moment. What are you beside your body? My imagination, my memories. Those things are just not real to us. They're completely related to this present moment. So we're stuck here. We connect with these bodies, the customary feelings of I. So your feelings of I come from your connection with the body. You get outside the body, your feeling of I would completely change. Utterly, drastically change. As such, we respond to moment and event, having little or no background. There's a big bang, boom, outside. All your attention goes to that, because that's in this moment, and anything else doesn't exist for you. So you can see that it keeps you captive. This moment keeps you captive and makes you relate to everything that happens now, because there isn't anything else for you. There is no past, there is no future, there is only now, and so therefore, you can only be focused on now because of your limitation with this body and this momentary psychology. As such, we respond to the moment and event having little or no background. The hermetic exercise is to produce background through making the invisible side of things real. So the purpose of this exercise is to make the invisible side of things real. What's the invisible side of things? Your past and your future. The invisible side of things is the fourth dimension, the dimension just directly above you, from which this present moment is passing through this dimension. Hello? That's like the pencil passing through the paper world. So as we are right now, it's only through our conceptions of the invisible that we can change our present moment in psychology. If we can somehow begin to conceive of a living past and a living future, it can help us to get out of or to expand out of our present momented psychology. And to every alteration in our present momented psychology, we give the feeling of I, 
So we have a momentary psychology against which the hermetic exercise is surely directed. The hermetic exercise is to blast us out of, and it won't blast us out. It's like blasting rock. You blast it, but you still got to haul it all away. And the blasting is the easy part. It's the hauling away that takes a long time and is very difficult. We've got to start hauling away all of these hard, rigid ideas that have buried us. It's like we are buried under a mountain of rock, and the ideas are to blast that rock, and then we've got to start digging our way out. I wish I could tell you it was easy, but I'd be lying, and I'm not accustomed to doing that. Although, you could go almost anywhere and have people lie to you. I won't do it. I maintain that this momentary psychology, into which the self-love enters so powerfully, rests partly, if not fundamentally, on the distinction between was, is, and will be. That is, on the belief in passing time which makes only that the instant seem to be the site of the life. Your life is right now in this instant. For you, it is not in the past. For you, your past is dead. For you, your future is dead. Yet, in truth, it is alive and real. And it exists right now. You just are blind to it. You're completely, utterly blind to it because of your senses locking you into this. But you have other senses, senses that are connected with ideas. There's a sense of smell, a sense of taste, a sense of touch, a sense of sight, a sense of hearing in higher realms. It's all the senses that we have, only higher. So the French called it clairvoyance, clear seeing. The prophets were called seers because they could see the future because they saw that the future was right now. They had this second sight. They were able to see into the fourth dimension, and they could see the past and the future. The result is a point of reaction that is overstressed and shifting. So the result of us being stuck here on the belief in passing time, which makes only this instant seem to be the site of the real life, of our life, that result is a point of reaction that is overstressed and shifting, and one that gives no starting point for unity or integration. One, in fact, that could not possibly do so. So this ordinary consciousness that we're stuck in could not possibly, we can't think our way out of this. We can't get out of this with the ideas that are generated in this ordinary state of consciousness. An idea has to be introduced from a higher place. It has to be seeded into us, and we have to accept it, or at least be willing to entertain the notion, entertain the idea. And the more willing you are to entertain the idea, and the more often you entertain the idea, the more that idea becomes iconoclastic, the more it begins to break up the rock that we're stuck in. It's like you're a fly stuck in amber, and something from the outside has to hit that amber to fracture it. That's these ideas. It's been repeatedly taught in the past that man is in division, in a state of inner confusion. Just in case you don't know that about yourself, let me tell you that I have looked at you and talked to you and known you for over a quarter of a century. You are in a state of inner confusion. Nothing personal. Your inner confusion is maybe not as confused as some other people's inner confusion out there. I've met people who are so confused that they're not confused. That's the most dangerous place you can be. So confused that you think you got it all right. That you think that the way you see things is the only way that they can be seen. That is death. Absolute death to development. But the fact that you have been hammered so long and so hard with these ideas, you're just not so sure anymore. You're just not so cocksure about everything you thought was right, which is very unsettling. It's hard to live life with people when you think like that, because you could be wrong. And that's a very vulnerable place to be. Think about it. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. But remember what it was like to be right all the time? 
Well, some of you can remember because you're still right all the time, but, but you know what I mean. When you're right all the time, you always win the arguments because they're always stupid and they don't know what they're talking about. And But when you start to see, when you start to be shaken, then you start to question yourself. Maybe I'm not right. Maybe the way I remember it isn't the way it happened. Maybe, pff, I don't know. You know. Then it's very unsettling. But it's a state of consciousness you need to be in to develop. It's like being a child in school. Children in school know everything, don't learn anything. It's only the ones who go in there and think, what are you talking about? I don't know that. What do you think? What do you mean? What's that all about? Those are the ones who have an opportunity to learn. They can expand. They can grow. They can learn something new. But the ones who already know everything or they don't want to know anything else, forget it. Which means most students today in our country. Here's what he has to say about our inner confusion. Man is not one, but many. True philosophy has been defined as that which knows how to join him together. So anything that can unify us, the man, anything that can unify you, join you together, all these fragmented bits and pieces, your fractured self, anything that can begin to bring that fractured self together in a proper harmonious balance, that is philosophy. The integration of man was held to be possible. It was held to be possible. Now, people don't even think about it because they think they are integrated. But it used to be held to be possible. Integration means the binding together of parts into a whole, and so to become whole or complete. But most people think they are whole and complete. It means to become unified, to become one. And for this unification, ideas that are foreign to our disintegrated psychology are necessary. Disintegrated. It's not whole. It's not an integer. Our psychology is fragmented. For unity to happen, for us to be brought together, then ideas that are foreign to our disintegrated psychology, foreign to us, are necessary. Where are we going to get these ideas? Let's turn to some descriptions of man's multiple nature. Bearing in mind that we make the greatest mistake if we suppose that we possess any oneness or unity naturally. What can I tell you? You remember many years ago when I said you're not one. And I told you you're many different eyes, many different selves. And you just thought I'd gone off the deep end. But now you see it, and you think, okay, well, he was right about that. Well, let's go a little bit further then. Our ordinary state has been described by Synesius, 4th century, in these words. Man is not some simple object, nor is he cast in one pattern. But God is made to dwell in the constitution of a single creature, a host of forces mingled together and with full-toned voices. Just in case you hadn't noticed, you have a voice in your head, and it's talking right now. In fact, it never shuts up. You have to go to sleep to get rid of it. I mean, literally go to sleep to get rid of it. And then, if it won't let you sleep, you can't sleep. It can keep you up. It can wake you up in the middle of the night if it wants to and get you thinking. You're not thinking. It's that voice running its mouth. And what is it saying? The same thing it has always said your entire life. But we don't know that because we've never looked at it. But if you begin to look at it, you will see that it's nothing but a loop recording. And it just goes over and over and over again. And its basis is fear, limitation. And that's where all the anxiety comes from. We are, I think, a monstrous animal more extraordinary than the hydra and still more many-headed. I love it. For not with the same part of our nature, of course, do we think and desire or feel pain and suffer anger, nor is our fear from the same source as our pleasure. It all comes from different parts. Again, you will observe how there is a male element in these organs and a female, and that there is courage and also cowardice in you, and all existing together, though you're not usually aware of them together. But you can be, 
if you learn to properly observe yourself. There are, in sooth, all kinds of opposites within us, and a certain medial force of nature runs through them, which we call mind. That came from Augustine Fitzgerald, Synesius on Kingship, Volume 1. The Essays and Hymns of Synesius of Cyrene. Translated in English with the introduction, blah, 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 by Augustine Fitzgerald. Okay, this multiple nature of man is described thus by Plutarch. Each one of us is made up of 10,000 different and successive states, a scrap heap of units, a mob of individuals. Having no unity, Plutarch remarks, we never really are, nor can we feel now. Now is squeezed into the future or into the past as though we should try to see a point which of necessity passes away to right or left. He's saying the same thing we've been saying all along. He's just saying it in a different way, and we need to hear it in different ways. We need to see this from different angles. We need to walk around the fourth dimension and view it from every possible angle. We need a 360-degree view. We need to get above it, below it, around it. We need to see the whole thing. And it's going to take some effort and some time. But it's okay because you've got an eternity. You just don't know that yet. It's well described in a recent article, a person is an assembly. This assembly consists of many dramatis personae who have come from different directions, animated by different inclinations, and tending to different ends. You can see that you have a bunch of different wills, a bunch of different desires, and that it can be so confusing sometimes to know what to do. What should I do about this right now? What do I want to do? Do I want to do this? Do I want to do that? It comes in a thousand different ways. Simple thing. What do you want for dinner? Uh, well, part of me wants this. Well, this is a good idea. Well, that's a good idea. See? It's all these different wills. And they're all run by what? By something unconscious. By little parts of little mechanical centers. Or by the little mechanical parts of centers. That's what I mean to say. He says, sometimes one of them gets up, gives a discourse, or accomplishes an act. Then reseats himself and remains silent, motionless. While another, in his turn, speaks and acts. And it's like Gurdjieff used to say about the phone rings. You know, the master goes out of the house and the kitchen scullery goes to the phone and calls up and orders all this stuff and uses the master's name. And then so all that stuff's sent. And then somebody else, you know, the guy, the chauffeur, he comes in and he picks up the phone and he orders a whole bunch of stuff. And then somebody else comes and he orders a whole bunch of stuff. And somebody else comes in, the chambermaid, she orders a bunch of stuff. And all this stuff is being sent. And when it gets there, nobody knows who ordered it or who's going to pay for it. And that's our life. No wonder it's so confusing. At other times, several of these personages get up together. Support each other in their discourses and combine activities. But often, too, those who get up are not in agreement one with the other. They dispute fiercely, quarrel, and anathematize each other. Occasionally, the assembly grows very tumultuous, and the members rise together and fight frenziedly. That is a person, and such is each one of us. You see, we don't see it that way. But you can see it that way. If you will look that way, you will see it that way. But you have to take these ideas first before you'll be willing to see it that way. But if you let the introduction of these ideas take a little hold on you, then you can see that, yes, it's true. You'll start to see it. You'll start to really see it for yourself, and you won't need this to tell you that. Since we are an assembly, inner development and the reaching of unity cannot be taken separately. Clearly, if we're going to develop, if we're going to reach any kind of unity, then inner development and the reaching of unity can't be taken separately. They have to be taken together. The one necessarily implies the other. 
Unless he attains inner unity, man can have no I, can have no will. You can have many wills all conflicting. You can have many eyes all conflicting. We're some in agreement with others, but mostly in conflict. But you can't have any real I, and you can't have any real inner unity, and you can't have any real will. The concept of will in relation to a man who has not attained inner unity is artificial. It's just a lie. It's imagination. The whole of life is composed of small things which we continually obey and serve. You serve your belly. You serve the clock. When it tells you to eat, you eat. When it tells you to wake up, you wake up. When it tells you to go to bed, you go to bed. You are a slave to these little things. A slave. A complete, utter slave to them. The whole of life is composed of small things, continually making us serve them and obey them. Our eye continually changes as if it's in a kaleidoscope. Every external event which strikes us, every suddenly aroused emotion becomes caliph for an hour. Well, an hour, a minute sometimes, a few seconds sometimes. Every suddenly aroused emotion begins to build and govern and is, in its turn, as unexpectedly deposed and replaced by something else. So, look at your life. You get something, and well, now you go on to something else. Okay, I enjoyed that. Now what's next? It's really frenzied. Although living lightly with few duties is impossible. It's absolutely impossible like that. Not possible to do. Which is why you have so much trouble doing that. Which is why your life is so frenzied and you're in so hectic. And why you think I'm so lazy. And you're right. By that standard, I am lazy. And the inner consciousness, without attempting to disperse the illusory designs created by the shaking of the kaleidoscope and without understanding that in reality the power that decides and acts is not itself, endorses everything and says about these moments of life in which different external forces are at work, this is I. This is I. Whatever the strings make the marionette do, the marionette says, I'm dancing, I'm waving, I'm lying down, I'm sitting down, I'm this, I'm that. But it's not making itself do that. The strings are being pulled by the events of life. Yeah, time to stop. Do you believe that? Where's that pencil? Wait. You threw the pencils away. Okay. I was going to bring home a new one and I forgot. Uh-huh, she forgot. Okay, so you're excommunicated. Truth is a-